The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Welcome into episode 19 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, and I'm coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is Tim Baltus, who's better known as Timbo from Kino on Instagram. Tim not only has one of the most interesting and entertaining and fun channels on Instagram, um, he's also an incredible player and he's accomplished a lot via Instagram. He's done various drum session work for Disney and 20th Century Fox and a bunch of video games. So this conversation starts with how Timbo came to be and then how Timbo, the comedy drummer, turned into Tim Baltus getting hired to do a lot of other cool things uh, in drumming and in the industry and in marketing. Um, and then we dive deep because he has a history as working in retail and repairing vintage and used drums. So we talk a lot about gear. He gets some amazing drum sounds too. So I pick his brain for some secrets on how he gets those cool sounds. Uh, it's a fun episode. So uh, let's, uh, let's dive in. Here's Tim Baltus. All right. So let's talk about Timbo. Where did the alter ego Timbo come from? Oh, this is the podcast now? Oh, we're recording, dude. Yeah, this You're is gonna, We got to bleep the F then. Now we got to bleep the freaking F. <laughs> All right. So where did Timbo come from? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to hold you that bleep. So for <laughs> Timbo came from when I was six or seven years old, I had a friend, Eddie Colmos. Eddie's dad, his God-given name was Bear, like Grizzly Bear. Bear was a football player and a gym teacher. And he was also, he was a really silly old guy. And I remember I went over there one time and, and he called me Tim Boney. And then after that, uh, a few weeks later, it turned into Tim Boney macaroni. <laughs> and then the months and the years went by and who the heck wants to say six freaking syllables for your kid's friends, you know, name. So it became Timbo. So from, you know, seven or eight years old on out, it was Timbo was like the, uh, that was like the life of the party version of me, you know? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So that's that one. As soon as he called you Timbo, you had to go into comedy mode or what? How's it switch? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I was always like that kind of like goofy. I was the goofy fat kid, you know? And, uh, you know, I grew up with movies like, uh, anything Jim Carrey, uh, mm -hmm. Ace Ventura movies, the mask, that sort of thing. And, any comedy in that vein and so i was i was the kid emulating all of that all the time so <laughs> that was that was timbo that was that was game on when i heard timbo yeah when i first saw you online it had this it reminded me of um tom green a little bit mm. like i couldn't tell is, is this guy mentally ill or is is he just really good at playing this this it felt like I related to it because it's like you go to an office job, you're wearing a suit, and all you want to do is play your drums. So first thing you do when you come home <laughs> is you're still wearing your suit and you start yeah, wailing on the drums. That's a that's a long time ago. So you've been hanging in there a long time. Yeah, from the beginning, I was like, this dude is not right. There's something, <laughs> dude. I, I so I uh, yeah I don't know. I mean I guess it was always th that's what it was, right? It was an outlet, and I never intended for this to go anywhere. Uh, it was literally just like, Hey, I have these old drums. Well, first it started out as I went out, I went out to dinner with some friends and they were like, Hey, this is the new app, Instagram. We post our food pics on here. So mm -hmm. I posted food pics yeah, and then it, it turned into, uh, posting. What did I do then? Pictures of me and my grandpa fishing. Uh, 
And then from there, it was posting pictures of uh, my drum collection. And then the video came out and you do videos. And I, I never intended it to be anything more than just like an outlet, you know, mm -hmm. and then, uh, yeah, uh, a producer found me, started doing all the big, biggest jobs I ever did was through a producer I found on Instagram. And then, wow. you know, yeah, steam picked up and, uh, you know, it really became, uh, a marketing platform for myself. It became an entertainment platform, you know, on Instagram. Uh, it became, uh, a revenue stream with the drumless tracks. It's like, it's, it's become just like the center of, of my entire digital <clears throat> footprint, you know? So you're getting hired for like serious work, not to be the the crazy dude playing a cajon in, in someone's backyard. <laughs> <laughs> you, you believe it or not, believe it or not. Yeah, I've done uh, uh, Disney shows at the Tokyo Park. I've worked on Grammy Award winning movie soundtracks, uh, TV special soundtracks, video game soundtracks. Uh, I've worked with producers for records that go out on like Warner Records Canada. Um, so yeah, I actually, I get real work too, which is, it's kind of nice. That's wild. So what was that initial connection? Hey, you might be crazy, but I kind of want you to play on my <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, I worked with uh, this guy, Adam Gubman, who, uh, he's got a company called Moonwalk Audio and, uh, he messaged me on, on Instagram and he said, Hey man, uh, I love your drum sound and the way you play. And I'd really like to hire you to do some work. Have you ever done remote session work? And I, I, I just flat out lied and said, oh, yeah, I've done that before. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I, uh, I got my first gig was, a, a, you know, Wicked, the Wizard of Oz play. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was a Wicked slot machine soundtrack. Wild. So, okay. Yeah. So that snowballed into <clears throat> video game soundtracks, which snowballed into like Fox TV stuff and then background music for movies and then real mu music for movies. And then the big Disney park stuff, uh, Charlie Brown, like Schultz foundation, uh, approved video game soundtracks and like all sorts of just like ridiculous work all through this one dude, which was amazing. It was, it was really, really fun. Wild. What was the video that you posted that got the message? Do you remember how far back it was? Uh, that would have been 2016. So I know it was like mm. five, five, five years ago now. Um, and, uh, but I, I couldn't tell you what it was. I'm sure like, you know, I would, I, you know, I was, I was pretty, um, I was pretty, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't want to use this word, but like sneaky. I don't know. I was, I was targeting, you know, like people, not just drummers, but like people who hire drummers, mm. um, 2016 end of 2016 was when I really, you know, I, I went through a really big health crisis the last five years here that I've been finally able to crawl out of the last year and a half. And, um, 2016 was when it really first hit. So I, I quit playing the bands and the studio was my only outlet. Mm. So, you know, I wanted to find a way to collaborate, uh, that would, you know, make a little money. Cause it's nice to have, you know, an extra snare drum here and there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was basically what happened was it was like, okay, cool. Let's, let's see if I can find people who might want to pay me a little money and I get to do some collaborative work. And so hashtag studio drummer, hashtag remote drummer, hashtag drum production, drum recording, this, that, and the other. And he found me through one of those. Mm. Do you think we're maybe over the curve for Instagram now? Okay. No, no, I, the, as far as for serious musicianship, no. 
Mm. Um, the way that I view socials is, you know, you can go on TikTok and so much of it is entertainment based is specifically for drumming and, and more so really for musicianship in general. It's, it's far more on the entertainment and, um, you know, on Instagram, you can, you can better balance serious drumming as, as far as your personality goes with entertainment, which is kind of what I try to do. You know, I don't want to be Fred Armisen already has the title of the funny guy who plays drums. Mm. I want to be the drummer. Who's also funny. Mm-hmm. Instagram's the right platform for that. You go on, uh, you know, one great example is, uh, I forget his first name, maybe David, but it, his handle is DA paradise. And he's this death metal drummer who, plays blasts over clips of like people screaming or like animals making weird noises and stuff. And, um, you know, he is, he's got like 200 K on TikTok, and, uh, he, um, has a ton of comedy and then a little bit of that serious side to what he's doing. So he's only bringing out, you know, I would say one every 10, one every 20 posts of, Hey, here's what my band's doing. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think the downside to having an entertainment, centric platform is that you lose out on true musicianship oriented work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think Instagram is still the platform for that. Could people eventually migrate over to TikTok? Sure. I mean, remember when Instagram killed Snapchat for the most part with stories and that sort of thing, it takes one new feature and then it takes one person to steal that new feature to change the entire working inner workings of a platform. Mm-hmm. When did um, <clears throat> the karaoke thing come into play? <laughs> that was when I really started questioning your sanity. <laughs> uh, that's fair. That's a fair. That's a fair assessment. So um, the first karaoke video, I don't even know why I did it. I have no idea. I was just like, let's just do something ridiculous. And I really, (laughs) so like, that's where the silly stuff started. Um, I remember I put on like, I think I had a cape. And then I think I had my, I had this like top hat. That's like for (laughs) Steve Austin, you know, the wrestler Um, and a couple other things. And then uh, I put on a, uh, a dragon, What's that band? I was going to say Dragon Ball Z. What's that band? Dragon Force? Dragon Force, yes. Yeah, that was the first one. And and I literally, all of them are, are ad-libbed. All the lyrics are ad-libbed. So I was just like, I'm just going to sing about Pokemon. And I made all these lyrics up about Pokemon over this Dragon Force uh, karaoke song that I found on on YouTube. So like it, it started there. It snowballed again. And it got more and more and more ridiculous. And then that snowballed into like the food reviews. Mm-hmm. Um I, w- I just finished up before we got on here. I was listening to the newest podcast that Sarah Hagen did mm-hmm. with uh, Steve Mizamore. And, uh, and they were talking for like two and a half minutes, very, very kind about, uh, you know, the funny stuff I do and the drumming stuff I do, the drumless tracks. And they were, <laughs> Steve was specific to say like that he really loved the food reviews, which again, just all spurred out of <laughs> this one freaking Dragon Force Pokemon karaoke video I did years and years ago wild (laughs) Uh, so what have you done in the past six eight now let's go 18 months to keep yourself creatively inspired amidst all the chaos of the world so uh having been chronically ill for five years really really that does a number in getting you prepared for a pandemic so thank god i almost died that was perfect (laughs) right (laughs) so 
you know, 2019, dude, I was, I was bedridden for six weeks in the middle of 2019 mm. and we could, their doctors were basically saying, you're going to, you're going to, you have this disease, it's going to turn into another disease and then you're going to die. So I was like, all right, cool. Tight. That's great. <laughs> Rock and roll. And, <laughs> so I kept doing my research, found out basically it was another thing. And, uh, now I'm taking medication and it'll, it's fixing it. So that's a good thing. Right. Yeah. But it's just to say that this whole time my energy levels were crashed. I really wasn't doing too much. And, and, you know, you learn to live since I, I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. I didn't have the physical energy. I had to find fulfillment at home. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, you know, and, and it, it was, and continues to be like media consumption. Like I love movies. Um, love listening to music. I'll go on walks and listen to music, go on walks and listen to, listen to podcasts. Um, a lot of drumming, especially now that I'm on uh, you know, medication that allows me to have a heck of a lot more energy now that I'm like basically normal again, mm -hmm. uh, for most days. Um, so like I'm able to drum five, 10 hours a week, easy and, and just crank out Instagram videos, which again, helps me just stay, stay involved in the community. You know, I don't like to go out too much because I have, you know, fears of everything that's going on out there. And, you know, with me being sick so long, I don't want to freaking get the bug, you know, that would, mm -hmm. I'm already sick. I don't want to be more freaking sick with another thing. <laughs> so, you know, for me to be able to connect with people, whether it's through like zoom or phone calls, texts, DMS, even just little comments to keep up with folks. It's, uh, you know, that's how I do it. All of it spurs from, uh, the things I do at home to keep me sane. the video, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So a while ago you were talking about moving. I know all this sort of derailed that, but do you think now these days, cause you're in Milwaukee outside of Milwaukee close to, so I'm right in between Milwaukee and Chicago and uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. So do you think now, once we kind of get back to whatever normal is going to be, do you need to be in a major metropolitan area to be a professional artist anymore? To be a professional artist? No, no. If you're a visual artist, here's where social media comes in and the differences between platforms. If you're a visual artist, you can make a six figure salary. If you can build a presence on TikTok. Mm. if you're, uh, if you're a musician and you want to focus on, uh, uh, let's say education, like uh, Lameem Young, uh, Max, you know, that guy lives in Puerto Rico and loves ambient music and does Patreon and makes a living doing that. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Literally j just posting crazy stuff on Instagram. That's the basis for his whole thing. Um, so yeah, the internet can be a basis for this. You can still tour. And like, again, with the advent of social media, you can literally just connect with whoever you need to connect with. You can you can go and fly in for a freaking rehearsal or a tryout or whatever and go home to, you know, I don't know, Butte. Where's Butte? Is that Idaho? Whatever the heck state Butte is in, but with an E on the end. So, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think you do. I, if you're a traditional professional, like, do you have to move? Yeah, sometimes. But, you know, I'm, I'm out here and my work you know, a lot of folks know Timbo, which is like this entertainer. He's a drummer. He does, and then he does this, you know, I do the serious stuff, the recording and, and, mm -hmm. and I do a lot of lessons now, but then there's this other side that people don't know a lot about. That's like, you know, I've been in this industry now since I was 18, I worked, uh, operations 
and used in vintage retail for five years to get me through college. And mm. then after college, I stayed involved and tried to find other ways to, you know, continue that passion. So I was like, uh, Jose Medellas, uh, who owns Revival Drum Shop as a dear friend. And we were just talking the other day about how, you know, his, uh, his upcoming book is going to come out. And I've got a couple pages of my writing featured in his book. Mm. Um, mm. you know, and I've done a bunch of marketing work with him or, you know, uh, I've stayed involved with, uh, like, uh, oh, who's that drum company? There's so many freaking drum companies nowadays, Mike. You know that? Um, pick a letter. You know, uh, yeah, pick a freaking letter. Franklin Drum Co. That used to be Risen Drums. I've been working with Grady and Tim over there for a year and a half, two years on the rebrand. Um, and that's been so much fun. I can do a lot of that here. But as that transitions to more of a full-time professional role, as opposed to a consultant, a move might be necessary. Uh mm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Like, but yeah, if you're going to play music or educate musicians or, uh, sell any sort of art, maybe it's karaoke videos. I don't know. Then <laughs> you can do that. Karaoke. From the, can you do that? That's right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I like that idea, but, um, you know, you can do that from anywhere. It's, it's honestly, it's, it's, it's really strange that it's literally just like, uh, nine to five type work that still seems to be like, you gotta be where we want you. <laughs> right. so, yeah. When did you first get interested in vintage drums? Uh, that's interesting. You say that. So, uh, I, so I started working at a music go round out here. Mm. Uh, we had uh, a system of two stores still do Kenosha and Greenfield, Wisconsin, which is basically Milwaukee and Kenosha. And, um, I bought my first vintage kit while I was working there when I was 19. It was a um, champagne sparkle, super classic sixties Ludwig kit and uh, had a little bit of water damage, but it was still, it was fine. Everything mm. was fine structurally. And I paid like $200 for it. Oh, wow. So I uh, did a lot of work on that plate. And I was like, yeah, this is like, this is a, this is a thing that I really like. Um, and then there's the history aspect of it too. Being here in Kenosha between Milwaukee and Chicago, we had, Ludwig was in Chicago. Slingerland was in Chicago. Camco was in Chicago. All of these drums were made here or some of them near here, Leedy. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's a few, a few more hours out, but you know, even Rogers over in Ohio. So, so many, so many of those drums were here. And then even beyond that, some of the far reaching rare drums that we don't necessarily see so much were here too. Uh, we had a, a retailer in Milwaukee, Faust Music, that sold a ton of sonar and it still pops up around here. So it's a really special area if you're a drummer and you enjoy those instruments. And that really drew, drew me to it. And it's funny that you mention it because the guy who really mentored me on this stuff, his name was Mike Smith. Uh, he just passed away a few weeks ago. And this was the guy who got me into uh, the Chicago drum show, which is this, mm. and you've been, you know, it's giant, giant event with a ton of uh, old dudes looking at stuff that they, they nerd out about. And um, he got me into vintage drums generally. And then a lot of the music that made certain kits, certain drums, you know, collectible and cool. Uh, and I'm actually going to be going over to uh, speak with Mike's wife today. And she's going to be uh, giving me a bunch of posters that he used to have, you know, like dealer Ludwig dealer posters and flags cool. and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, even like he had worked with uh, this guy, Mitch, 
who was in the Chicago area who used to build these drums called bison drums, if you're familiar with those mm. at all. And so I'm, she's given me Mike's old bison and yeah, Did really Bill Calhoun use one of their snare drums for a while. Probably. Like yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. They're <laughs> cool. You know, Eames shell and they used uh, basically what looked like Ludwig had those really weird, almost like just giant tubular die cast tubes that they would use on their Timbales, their early Timbales. I don't know. I think, that. I think that's what that's weird, these weird goofy hoops. And, and he was making them out of, I forget like manganese or something. And that was his like shtick on the drums was he would do that. Mm. So what was, you said your first vintage kit was the uh, champagne sparkle. What was your first vintage yeah. snare drum? Now, see, I've been listening to the podcast <laughs> and you ask everybody, what's the first snare you bought? I know that one. I don't know the first freaking vintage snare. Oh, that's, that's coming. tough. Patience. That's, right. coming. <laughs> that's kind of better come. So the first, the first vintage snare I remember buying, <clears throat> it was probably a, like a 14 by five superphonic. And I have, mm. you know, like a sixties, I've owned probably 20 or 30 of those drums uh, from all different eras. And, uh, that's one that it has taken years. You know, it's, it's almost like when you play for long enough, you get a, a minute sense for time. And in, in that same period, you get a minute sense of, of sound or tonality or musicality of the instrument itself. And so, you know, where, when I was 1920 and people would say, um, oh, you know, all those acrylites sound awesome or all those superphonics sound awesome. Now I'm at the point where I'm like, no, there are incredibly different sounding superphonics or, you know, acrylites. And so while I don't have that sixties one, that first one, I'm, I'm sure that was the first vintage snare I had. Um, you know, now I play, I have an eighties one with like a broken badge and a dent in it. And, and it's the best sounding five inch super i've ever owned i paid like 110 dollars for it so mm. what is okay let's talk about the minutia of a superphonic what is that one bringing to you that the ones in the past did not more body uh it's it, and a warmer sense of body i don't know what it is i you know it's a seamless aluminum shell like it should provide the same sound every time but for some reason it, i don't know there's some special sauce but yeah for me it's usually the difference is some of them are more trashy more honky mm -hmm. you know and then this one just was the it was the i guess you could say the prettiest and roundest sounding of all of them that i've ever owned is there a snare that you sold that you wish you hadn't mm. <laughs> that's a tough one you know i'm i'm okay here's one so when, one year at the drum show, uh, there was this dr incredible uh, drum, a Slingerland drum from the 20s that must have been made by an employee for one of their kids. And it was a kick and a snare. Um, and it was like five coat duco. So it went from like, I forget exactly what it was, but I think it was cream to like a coppery red to like a baby blue to like a cream white to like a pink. And it was ridiculous. And, and the kick was the same color scheme. And then on the front of the kick, it had two butterflies that were kind of like stencil spray painted with those same colors from the Duco. Incredible. So I bought the snare. I don't know why I didn't buy the freaking kick. I should have bought that too. <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, 
I don't know why I sold it. I wound up selling it. And I sold it to the, the music go around since I didn't have a ton of money into it. And they paid me really good. They still pay me really good, good folks. And so they sold it to a guy, a collector I know named Joe in Connecticut. Joe in Connecticut sold it to Joey in, uh, at Wood and Weather. Joey at Wood and Weather sold it to Joe Cox in the UK. So it went from Tim to Joe to Joe to Joe. <laughs> and it went across the pond. <laughs> and, you know, thank goodness uh, all these guys are friends. And uh, it's nice that, you know, I know it's got a good home now, but man, was it, it's just the most beautiful snare drum. And funny enough, the kick, we, we posted a pic, somebody posted a picture of the snare in one of the Ludwig Facebook groups years ago. And we were like, hey, there was a kick that came with this because I had a picture of it. So I sent that over. Where did this kick end up? It wound up with a buddy of mine up in freaking Madison, Wisconsin. That's how small this world is. <laughs> Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Now, the Duco is one of my all-time favorite finishes. I have not seen a modern Duco that has the vibe of the vintage Duco. Do you know of anyone doing a modern Duco, or what is it about the vintage Duco that makes it so damn cool? Probably lead. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> you know, it's like there's probably some carcinogen <laughs> that just makes that paint look so good. <laughs> it's so appealing to the eye. You just want to eat it. <laughs> taste. I, I like a tasty paint. <laughs> so there's a there's a drum company. Uh, there's a few drum companies that I think are doing it right. Um, C and C makes some really pretty Ducos. They they mm. they paint that really well, and I think that comes because. Uh, you know, Bill, before he was building drums, was a collector. So he's super into this. And so I think he had such a knowledge of history that he knew, like, you know, this is the, this has got to look a certain way. And he does it right a lot of the time. Uh, there's a company called Firehouse Drums that uh, I've been working with. They, they do a pretty cool duco. Uh, Josh Fry of Rainier Drum Shop. He's been working on perfecting Duco for years. Um, you know, there's a lot of people trying it, but yeah, I, I always go back to CNC. There's still some of that human error from time to time, which you're going to find with any Duco drum, uh, even the old stuff. But the vibe, you know, trying to get the color to hit the light right, trying to make it feel generally the way that I describe vintage Ducos is that they're soft. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I think the people that hit that the best still are our CNC. There we go. Good tip. So what do you look for when shopping for a vintage or new drum? <clears throat> uh, does it sound like garbage or not? <laughs> and, and honestly, you know, it's, I'm so, you know, I'm the kind of person who will buy a brand new drum set and then tear it apart. Mm. Um, so, and, and I'll do that with my vintage kits too. I, I just dropped off a batch of snare drums to get 
fixed and have uh, edges trued and that sort of thing up at Milwaukee Drum Co. Derek Mance, uh, great guy. And um, everybody's a great guy. I don't know. I'm going to tell you on this podcast, everyone I know, great guy. So Please don't give a uh, shout out to a bad guy. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> the Joker? What a doofus. So, um, you know, usually what I look for is um, I don't, because the way the market's gone. So like when I was younger, I could buy collector's drums at a price where it was like, yeah, that's cool. You know, if I really want that drum, it's not inaccessible. Now, pricing on the vintage market is so incredibly high that I can't afford to drop money on those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So, so player drums, modified drums, you know, for guys that were using them in the 60s, 50s, whatever, those are the drums that are accessible to me now. And honestly, it's more appealing because then I can screw with them and no one's going to care. So generally, that's what I'm looking for. Um, as far as like, you know, like the thing that I really want right now is I really want a clear interior Ludwig kit, like 69, 70, 71, uh, to match, uh, my uncle who he's the guy who bought me my first drum set when I was like two or three years old. He, his parents, my grandparents, they bought him. Uh, it's like that in between the Ringo oyster black and then the bowling ball oyster black. There was this one really weird period of funky mm. like gen two oyster and he has one of those it's just like a hollywood kit with an lm 400 so 22 12 13 16 and a 14 5 supra um you know it'd be really nice to have one of those plus in my opinion those are the best sounding vintage drum shells but again price is such an issue um but yeah i really don't care about too much structurally or anything because i have a guy who's going to fix it in the end mm-hmm. um more than anything, you know, it's, it's not the drums you got to worry about, but having someone who's going to fix the drums that you play or get them to sound the way you want or knowing how you can do that yourself. So one of the kits I get asked about a lot is that little green downbeat kit that I play. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, a Ludwig classic maple kit downbeat. So 20 by 14, 12, eight, and a 14, 14 floor. It was the heritage green kit that Ludwig built for their promo shoot for that new uh, uh, series of finish. And, uh, I was at the Chicago drum show in 2018, talked to Uli, uh, was able to buy that through them. And immediately I put it under microphones and this was back when Ludwig was just doing a 45 inner cut and no outer cut. Right. Yeah. God bless them. But that sounds poopy. So (laughs) that's a technical term. That's a technical term. What kind of poopy? (laughs) (laughs) So what I, you know, basically I was getting that basketball sound out of the toms and the kick and I couldn't Mm. get rid of any of that. So, you know, and I talk about this company a lot, but what I did is, and they're probably going to be mad at me. Jake's going to be mad at me now, but I brought uh, those Ludwigs up to my buddy, Derek. And I said, Hey, we're going to put the CNC Gladstone edge on this. We already have the inner 45. Let's put a little round over on those outer two plies. He hand rubbed that onto each of those drums and it immediately cleared up so much of the issues I was having. Mm. Um, then what I did is funny enough, uh, some of the, a lot, I think quite a bit of the parts I bought drum factory direct. Uh, I swapped the 2.3 millimeter triple flange hoops for for Mm 1.6. So, you know, that provided me with, you know, I always want, I want to let the drum resonate the best I can. So that's why the hoop change was there. And I want to balance the sound that I'm getting from the actual drum shell and the drum head, which is why I had that bearing edge modification done. 
So I made those changes. I took the gaskets off the floor tom and the tom, but I left them on the kit because I just want a, a quick transient and then, you know, that transient to cut real nice like that. So that's why I left it on the kick. Um, whereas I like to dampen appropriately on the toms. So I'll, I'll use the increments. I, I was, thank God, this is all on the top of my mind because I was just teaching this to a student the other day. So <laughs> as far as incremental dampening, what I'll do then with the toms is like, okay, nothing on the toms, then snare weight M80s, then Ritz EQ rings, then Ritz EQ inserts, like tea towel things. And so now I have four different tom sounds without having to retune anything or change heads or do, do any work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So again, back to the point here, what do I look for when I'm buying drums or whatever? It's not necessarily what the drums do as is, but what I know they can do to serve my need um, in the end, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Man, gaskets. That's something no one talks about. Um, what do they do? What do they not do? Why use them? Why take them out? It's a minute difference. Um, so a lot of these things, edge, I think edge, if, if anything, edge is going to make the biggest difference, um, in my opinion. But as you change, you know, let's say the edge makes a 10% difference. The hoops make a 10% difference. The gaskets make a 5% difference and the head makes a 20% difference. Well, each of those things is minute, you know, alone. But now you're talking about, a, you know, almost a 50% difference if you change all of them to kind of tailor your sound. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, gaskets are minute, but they can be a part of the bigger picture of what you're trying to get out of that drum set. So, you know, really what I find is that gaskets, particularly on modern drums like Ludwig's, they tend to dampen a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, thank goodness this heritage finish is a, it's a paint, you know, it's not a wrap. And, you know, I find that wrap almost acts like one giant gasket, mm -hmm. you know, and it'll, it'll, uh, kind of muffle or kind of, I guess maybe, maybe another word would say is just kind of quiet that transient or the ambience that would come post transient in the drum. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, again, not to a great extent, five, 10, 15%, but you know, if you go wrap to paint, okay, now you're gaining, let's say 10% you know, back of that resonance that you could, the max resonance you can get from a drum, you take the, you know, so you go wrap to paint. Now you go paint and take off the gaskets. Maybe you gain another five or 10%. Now you're talking again about a, a big difference. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's just, it's a tool, it's a tool and you can use it to create a short transient. If you leave them on there, a shorter transient, and you can take them off to create a, a longer, you know, note out of that drum. Would you hear a difference with diecast hoops and no gaskets versus gaskets? Or would there need to be thinner hoops to really kind of hear it? Excuse me, I just need to hydrate a little bit over here. <laughs> uh, I know we're getting to you the, know, the tough questions here. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> you know, I really think uh, I don't. I think it needs a, a thinner hoop. But that's my. Pr I always play thin hoops. I love one point six millimeter hoops. Mm. Um, chrome, chrome over steel or chrome over brass. It, I think chrome over brass is going to be like that's the max you're going to get as far as musicality out of a drum. But uh, yeah, with diecast, I don't think it really makes too big a difference. I think I. I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure I left. I have uh, Revival Drum Shop partnered with Ludwig and did the Rebet kit which is mm -hmm. a jazz that 
with the Keystone shells. I think I left the gaskets on there and I popped uh, uh, die cast on. And I, I don't know. I think if I took the gaskets off, I don't think it made too big a difference. Is there one snare or kit that you'll never sell? The green one. The, I did, you know, I did everything to those drums to make them sound like me. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> it's, it's so special. Um, it's just got a mojo. Uh, I, you know, I was the guy who used to own 10, 15 drum sets and 30 or 40 snares. And, uh, you know, that gets overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, both having to store those things, having to maintain those things, then having to swap those things in and out as needed. It's a lot of work. I have three main drum sets now, and I'm really only playing one. I'm mm-hmm. just playing those green ones most of the time for you know my purposes here. Uh, I guess people might say, well, what about the fiberglass drums? People, I don't know if if anybody oh, the, knows who the million Tom kit. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've been using that kit recently. Scott Jenkins over at Jenkins Martin, uh, borrowed me a bunch of, uh, blame here. So I've got like eight, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 concert toms, 12, <laughs> 12 by eight, 14, 14 and 16, 16 double headed toms and a 22 by 15 kick. And then I have, those are all fiberglass. And then the snare is a 14 by six and a half, uh, basalt snare. What is that? Um, it's like uh, basically lava rock. Mm. Um, have you talked Weird. to Scott about how he makes his drums at all? No, <laughs> no. Fascinating. <laughs> oh, it is. It, well, and see, because you know, when you think fiberglass, you kind of think sheet. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, like the pearl stuff. Uh, Tom, a fiber star, kind of feel the same. Scott does is he he uses filament, so it's like. Fiber, you know, glass filament, basalt. I think he uses a few other materials too. So you have a ton of this filament. They go through an epoxy bath. They come back up, and then uh, they go on a mandrel, and then they just kind of back and forth. You know, kind of like you would, I don't know, form a shirt or something. You know, it's like weaving, really. Mm. And and the, what's really cool about this versus other fiberglass is it forms. Uh, a grain pattern. The difference between this and wood is that this grain pattern with the fiberglass is so uh, uniform as opposed to wood. You never know what you're going to get ply to ply. Mm-hmm. So, so that's been really, really interesting to play with. Uh, they're not my drums. They are just, I'm just borrowing them to make a bunch of stupid videos. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> i I'm, I'm playing the uh, Phil Collins in the air tonight, Phil, over every song in the history of songs. Uh, <laughs> it's, when listen, do you it's know a, that that horse is finally dead? <laughs> never, never. It's never dead. <laughs> I love it. So I'm, you know, I'm going to continue with that stuff. And, and, you know, eventually give me another month and maybe I'll have played the 800 songs I want to get done there. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it, you, you get to a point where, you don't need all these drums. You don't need mm. 10 kits or 30 snare drums. If you, if you can buy one really good drum set or two or three really good drum sets for me, I have my little kit, my medium kit, and my big kit. Mm. Um, and then again, know how to modify those drums, you know, know how to navigate purchasing parts. DFD is such a great resource. You know, you can go there and it's like, okay, well I've got, 
this Ludwig kit. I want to get this the thinner hoops. Oh, wait, there's a chrome over brass option. What does that do? Mm. Okay, it's way more expensive, but I gain all of these additional qualities. Well, maybe it's worth the money then, you know? So understanding what all these different parts do as you swap them in and out, uh, you can take a kit if you really love it upon that initial purchase and then want to continue to love it for years to come. Modify the drums a little bit tastefully to get what you need to get out of them as, uh, you know, as, as the times change musically, as your tastes change musically, and it can be a lifelong kit, you know, and then you're not having to have 10 or 15 freaking drum sets, you know? Mm -hmm. All right. What was your first snare drum? Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that question. <laughs> first snare drum. My, so the first, so the first snare drum I had was with the first kit I had, which is almost embarrassing, but I didn't have any freaking money. I was 15 years old and my mom wasn't going to buy me a drum set because she bought me a bass when I was 12, even though I played the crap out of it. But I, uh, so I was in a band with some guys and I was going to play bass and, uh, and they said, Tim, we can't find a drummer. You can kind of play drums. Why don't you figure out how to get a drum set? So I went to homeroom the next day and talking to Tony Ambrosini and Tony, good old Tony. I said, Tony, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't afford a freaking drum set. He says, Tim, I got a drum set at my house. I'm going to sell it to you for $10. <laughs> so I, you can guess what kind of poopy this was. It was a CB in wine red garbage, garbage, garbage. <laughs> it was missing half the heads, half the other heads were broken. So I put, you know, I put like, I don't know, emperors on everything. And then like, God bless me. I put a pinstripe base on the kick batter. So I had to fill that with pillows. Otherwise it sounded like I was in a polka band, <laughs> but <laughs> thank goodness. This snare wasn't that bad. It was like a 14 by five and a half eight lug snare and since it had eight lugs i didn't know what the heck i was doing i just cranked up the top and bottom and got the snare wires to where i wanted them and that just sounded good mm -hmm. um but that so that was the first actual snare but like the first snare i bought intentionally uh i was playing so i played a lot of hardcore and death metal so i wanted to be a real cool guy and uh i had a tama rockstar kit so i thought well maybe i'll get a tama snare to go with it i found uh, one of those Tama Artwood. It was like a maple, like plain maple lacquer, natural maple lacquer, 14 by eight snare. Ooh, um, big boy. Yeah, yeah. And I know Kevin was on the podcast recently, Kevin Murphy, mm -hmm. and he was talking, he was talking about the magic of the Aquarian high energy head. Yeah, yeah. And at, uh, at 15, 16 years old, I didn't know how to tune drums and that head, man, that made me sound good. <laughs> now, did so you become aware that. of that because of Dave Grohl, like everyone else, or was it just at the shop? How did you discover it? It was just at the shop. And I was like, I hit it a couple times and I was like, wow, this is huge. And it looks cool. And it was like 140 bucks. I was like, you know, it was a little pricey, but as compared to some of the other stuff on that rack, I was like, this is a really nice drum for 140 bucks. <laughs> so I went for it. Nice. That's a pretty crazy price for that drum. What am I to get now? Three something? Uh, they're at least a couple hundred bucks. I had two, three hundred bucks. Yeah. All right. I want to shift into drum sounds because I think um, I want you to share as much as you feel, feel safe to share <laughs> about your secrets. But uh, what is your ideal drum sound? Let's start there. Uh, so I guess for me, when I talk ideal drum sound, the first word that comes to mind is options. 
So like mm. when I record, I want options. And I think a lot of people, when they hear my drum sound, they're like, how the heck do you get that? Um, room, room mics, not mm. a room mic, but several options. So when you look at my setup, when I have a normal kit set up without 8,000 toms is I have two different kick mics. I have three different snare mics. And that what, what you don't see in frame is I have three different room mics. Mm. Uh, I do kick in, kick out. I do snare top, sometimes two different snare tops, like a condenser and a dynamic microphone. Sometimes I'll move that condenser to the side uh, to do like the Rami uh, Antune thing. He does that snare side mic. And then uh, I'll do a snare, just a snare bottom. Rooms, I'll do like a, a short room, a medium room, and a far room. Mm. So for me, it's all about options because the way that I structure uh my filming is that i instead of having like when i go into my daw i use logic instead of having songs lined up on my grid just to play through in their entirety i run an ipad feed through so that i can start and stop songs whenever i want so then if i screw up a song i don't have to reset all my video and audio equipment i can just say all right go back to the spot and let's try it again mm. I can also film for a much longer time period. I use a, a an iPhone to film. Uh, so, and I'm basically giving all y'all my secrets. So now, pay for my drumless tracks or something, <laughs> you mooch. But you know, so I um, by using a iPhone over a DSLR, now you can film for an hour and a half, two hours instead of thirty minutes, fifteen minutes, depending yeah. on you know yeah. the quality of the filming. Um, so now I'm playing through a ton of songs at one time. You know, I might go from, you know, big grungy rock stuff to hip hop stuff to, you know, low key indie stuff. And when I go back to mix all that, I have the same set of stems for all those things. So how do I get, so like if, how do I get from rock to this, you know, kind of low key indie stuff? Well, in the rock thing, I have the options with the room mics. I'm going to opt for a really far out room mic. Um, I always recommend cheap ribbon mics for room mics. So like I have a, I have a narrow room, I have a short room, but I have a really long room. Mm. So almost 40 feet out from my kit, I place a room, a ribbon mic and it's placed uh, perpendicular to the kit. So instead of the element facing the drum set, it's facing the walls to the left and right. This mm. is because I always talk about, you want to pick up the room not the drum set, the ambience, not the transients. Mm -hmm. So what that does is it allows me to get the huge rock sound I want to accomplish there. I'll probably, uh, since it's a rock song, I'll probably use both my kick mics to get a ton of punch out of the kick. I'll probably use both my snare top mics to get a ton of just beef out of the snare. And there I get that. Now, wh what the heck am I going to do now that I get to, I don't know, I mean, uh, a fictional indie band called Prissy Pants and the Dodo Birds. You know, <laughs> what am I going to do with their music? So, if I need to get that prissy pants tone, <laughs> prissy pants, <laughs> I'm going to use, you know, first of all, when I'm on the kit, I'm going to change dampening, right? You know, maybe I'm going to use tea towels, the rootsy Q inserts. Mm -hmm. um, then I want a softer kick tone. So I'm just going to use my kick out mic, but maybe use a plug in in the box to kind of better balance uh, the sound of that particular mic in the mix. Then maybe I'm just going to use my snare top mic and then to, uh, you know, fill in the gap sonically, maybe I'm just going to use the short room mic to keep it tight, but to still make it sound like drums in a room. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't change anything there while I was playing as far as, uh, you know, having to scooch mics or, you know, add more channels. It was all there. Mm -hmm. All I had to do was, um, I'm going to change whatever dampening I have in the moment, which it all sits next to me. So it's not a big you know, problem. And then when I get in the box, I got everything there to go from, you know, rock boys, Supreme to prissy pants. <laughs> there you go. Are you anal about measuring your rooms for, for phasing? That's stupid. <laughs> all right. The next question. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. The big question I get as far as phasing is concerned is, um, there's, there's a trend with some producers. Well, they'll, they'll take the room mic and they'll drag it back to get it in phase with the rest of the recordings. Mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot. And I'm just like, why the point of a room mic is to add space to a recording. Does it add sort of a delay effect? Well, yeah, but that's the point you want to make it sound big. And that little bit of delay, those milliseconds of delay are what give you that big sound. So like those kind of trends, I don't really adhere to as far as like measurements, I'll try to balance like lengths for uh, overheads. Cause I try, you know, those, those can get out of phase pretty easy, but as far as rooms are concerned, um, no, I, I don't think it's worth it. I think of, uh, I think there was, there's a video somewhere on YouTube of Glenn Johns and he, uh, some, it's like a bunch of nerds around him and someone's like, how did you get the song, the sound on this song? And, uh, you know, and they're asking about, did you measure this? Did you measure that? And he's like, we put some freaking mics up and they sounded good. <laughs> I think that's like, you don't have to make it complicated. Like just put the mics up. If it sounds good, good. Then if you, I mean, if you have some phasing issues, obviously you want to fix them, but 90% of the time I have not encountered those issues personally. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your play long tracks. Um, which are available. Where can we get those? Uh, Jiminy cricket.com. It's uh, it's, <laughs> it's, if you go to uh, my Instagram, it's always the link in my bio, like 99% of the time. Otherwise, if you Google like Tim Baltus drumless, one word tracks, uh, it should be the first link that pops up. So, so when, yeah. when did you get into that? Why did you get into that? How do you make them? I mean, you've done a lot. Was this something you always wanted to do or did it just kind of happen by necessity? You need stuff to play to. I wanted to be in a techno band. No, I didn't want to so be in a techno band. So you started your own techno band? <laughs> <laughs> so what I did was uh, originally I just made these things for me and I would, I would take like a sample and loop it and then I'd sit down and I'd play some guitar over it and I'd play some keys over it and some bass and I'd have a thing. So the first drumless track volume, that's what I did. And I got like, I don't know, eight or nine tracks out of it. Um, but that took so long to do that. Mm. So I think that this, I don't remember if it was by volume two or volume, volume three, I moved three, I moved to all samples. And so when everything was sample based, well, shoot now in the same amount of time I'm taking, you know, being the one man band, I can get, you know, instead of eight tracks out, I'll get a hundred, 150 tracks out. Mm. As far as when it started, I, I couldn't tell you originally when it did, but, um, you know, it just started as a project just for me. And then everyone was like, Hey, I want these two. So I threw them on Bandcamp, and now it's been a, a really big thing. That was one of the things that Steve from Dirk Bentley was talking about with me, uh, earlier, to, earlier today, you know, it's like people, uh, love those drumless tracks, whether you're a professional at the highest level or 
Joe Schmo in their freaking mom's basement, you know, whatever you're doing, you can do something with this. It's, it's a great practice tool. Um, oh man, I just talked to, uh, this dude over in France who's, uh, wants to use them for a, a big contest for batch air magazine, which is the big drum magazine over in Europe. So yeah. like, wow, ridiculous, crazy, crazy. It's just, I can't believe how, how they've taken off like this. I don't get you in trouble. Do you have to get clearance for your samples? Oh, they're all cleared. All those samples are cleared. <laughs> so you're gonna. Thank how, goodness. Is there a is there an end goal for this, or you just keep producing until you don't want to do it anymore? The end goal is to move uh, to to do like three more volumes. I want to get to a thousand plus tracks online, and then I'm done. Mm. You know, it's, uh, I think that's enough. You know, I think other people can start to fill the need after that. Um, you know, maybe I'll come back and do another one after that, but I think that's like the goal, get a thousand out there and call it a freaking day. <laughs> How do you keep them from sounding the same? What's the inspiration? Um, it's not, I don't know. I just like, I just try to search out different sound sources, you know, like, you know, maybe I find a bunch of stuff that just sounds hip hop oriented. And I'm like, all right, this is freaking, this is played out long enough. Let's try to look at, I don't know, you know, uh, electronic sounds, this, that, or the other, you know, seek out just bizarre sample sources. And, mm. and just, you know, I trust my ear in the same way that I trust my ear to produce my drum sound. I trust my ear to produce these drumless tracks, you know, and curate what I'm building. Mm. How many of you yeah. thrown away? Has there been any discards? Oh <laughs> yeah, probably, probably 10% per volume. So there's probably an additional 15 to 25 tracks that just don't make the cut. Yeah. Mm. Did they get completely trashed or like held oh. for a later date? They're gone. They're in the <laughs> dumps, baby. Defragment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Defrag that disc. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at the end of the hour. So la last question is what's next for Tim or and or Timbo for 2021 and beyond? Uh, Timbo is going to be eating a lot of food soon. I have, uh, <laughs> I have I have like a bunch of food reviews that are stacked up. I have candies from like Iceland and England. I got a taste. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to putting on another 25 pounds here pretty quick. <laughs> and uh yeah, for me, uh, you know, I'm in a place now where I'm trying to get, you know, like I said, I've been on this health journey the last five, five and a half years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I'm looking to work full time again. And my goal is really the same goal that I had when I left corporate America in 2019, which is the ultimate goal is to try to find full time work doing something related to the music stuff mm -hmm. I've done, you know, or drums in general. So We'll see if anyone wants to hire me to sing folk tunes at your dad's <laughs> bar. Call me. Oh man. I was hoping the horse head would make an appearance, but eh, maybe next time, <laughs> next time, next time. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Tim. If you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and drop us a nice review over on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be much appreciated. Also, if you have any ideas or suggestions for future guests or topics, shoot them over to Mike at drumfactordirect.com and I'll get back to ASAP. Um, that's it for this week. So have a good one and we'll see you next Friday. <laughs>